0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9 The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dafren Johan. Former Sarawak Governor Tun Pehin Sri Haji Abdul Taib bin Mahmud has passed away. He was 87 years old when he died in a private hospital in Kuala Lumpur. Taib Mahmud served as the Chief Minister of Sarawak from 1981 to 2014. That's 33 years, making him the longest-serving Chief Minister in Malaysian history. He also served as the seventh Yang Di-Pertuan Negeri of Sarawak from 2014 to January of this year, 2024. That's an additional 10 years. Taib Mahmud was clearly an incredibly important figure in Sarawak and Malaysian politics but how will history remember him and how will Sarawak emerge from his shadows so we're going to be doing this in two parts two shows on today's episode um, we're going to be focusing on the legacy of Taib Mahmood and on next week we're going to be discussing the future of Sarawak Joining me on the show today to discuss this is Dr. James Chin. He's a professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. He's someone who has been studying and commenting on Shrawa politics for many, many years. As always, this conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app or wherever you get your podcasts from. James, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Good to be here. Thank you. So,
0: how would you describe the legacy of Tun Abdul Taib Mahmood?
1: Well, I think what you see in Sarawak today is basically his legacy. I think as your introduction pointed out, he started in 1981 and he has never been out of power. Even after he stepped down as the Chief Minister of Sarawak, he actually stepped up and became the state governor. So if you combine the two periods together, he was in power for more than 40 years. And as you know, right, Malaysia just recently celebrated 60 or 61 years of the federation. So 40 out of 60, it means two-thirds of the time he was in political power or some form of political power, either as the governor of Sarawak or as the chief minister of Sarawak. So everything you see today, I would argue, is reflective of his legacy. In fact, Anything that you see in Sarawak will have uh, will have some sort of bearing of his imprint. Um, the easiest way to understand it for your audience is probably that his imprint is as large as that of Mahate Mohamad in Malay politics. When you talk about Malay politics, you can't run away from Mahate. So he will have a similar imprint in Sarawak.
0: Let's get to know the man a little bit better. Who is Taib Mahmoud? What's his family background And how did he get into the world of politics?
1: So let's start with his background first. Uh, He's from an ordinary uh, Melanao background. His father is what we might call a petty official. Uh, He was basically given a scholarship during the the time of independence, uh, given a Colombo Plan scholarship to study law at the University of Adelaide. Now, of course, uh, we, we can't prove it either way, but I suspect uh, part of it has got to do with his uncle, uh, Raman Yaqub, who was already uh, a major political player. He was probably encouraged by his uncle to go to Australia to study. So after he finished his study in Adelaide, he came back to Malaysia, worked for the government service. And I think, again, through the prodding of his uncle, Raman Yaqub, he became interested in politics. Um, so his political career uh, at the initial stage, I would argue, was basically a push on by his uncle, Rahman Yaqub.
0: Just to clarify, did Taib Mahmud come from an aristocratic background the same way some of, you know, the, or many of the UMNO originals, you know, the, the oldies came from? You know, like if you look at the the legacy of Tunku Abdul Rahman, um, you know, he came from royalty, right? He That was his lineage. Um how do you see Thai Mamod? Because it seems to me like, you know, it's a sort of from um, half-half where his uncle was very well connected to the elites, but his father not so much.
1: The Kuchim Malay has a very hierarchical uh, uh, structure in the community, uh, but not among the Milanals. Uh, the place where he is from, the Milana areas in Dalat, uh, unfortunately, they don't have that sort of uh, uh, structure. So I'll argue that... Uh, He is, in modern standards, we might consider them uh, uh, the middle class. The father was basically a government servant. Uh, So uh, I don't think that he comes from a very uh, poor background, but neither was he part of the uh, rich elites as well. So I would say that uh, the middle class is probably the best way to describe him in modern terms.
0: What was he doing before politics? Um, Or was he someone who got into politics, um, you know, at a very young age where they joined the party um, at a very young age and, you know, politics become your entire career, your entire life? Or did he, was he involved in, you know, other forms of business and so on and so forth before jumping into politics?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, after he was sent to, to, to Adelaide to study law, uh, in fact, he married his first wife, Laila, who was actually a Polish Muslim from Adelaide. So when he came back, he worked for the government service, but immediately he was involved in politics because uh, through his uncle, uh, Rahman Yakub, and he played a, a major role in Sarawak politics immediately after independence as well. He was part of the first Sarawak cabinet, and in fact, he was uh, one of the uh, key leaders who was involved in what we call the Ninkang Affair. 1965-66, uh, he played a major role in, in consolidating uh, the support of the anti-Ninkan forces with the support of the federal government. And of course, he and his uncle were the two main personalities uh, behind the destruction of the Ninkan administration. How would you characterize
0: um, Taib Mahmud's tenure as Chief Minister of Sarawak? Because like you um, established in the introduction, Sarawak today... Um, for better or for worse, is because of Taik Mahmood. He was the CM for 30-something years. Um, how would you ca- characterize his tenureship?
1: So I think if you want to look at his tenureship, you have to sort of divide it into three separate parts. Uh, the first part, I would argue, is basically between 1981 to 1985. Uh, interestingly enough, the year he became the Chief Minister was around 1981, was also the year Mahate became the prime Minister of Malaysia many people forget that uh, their career sort of run in parallel at least for the first decade so I'll argue that for the first period of his uh his uh, chief ministership, Uh, this was a period when he was uh, more or less in in conflict with his uncle, Rahman Yaqub. Again, his history is instructive. So when Rahman Yaqub stepped down as the chief minister of Sarawak in 1981, he also arranged for himself to be promoted to the governorship and that's what Type did later in his career. So uh, for the first uh, few years, 1981-1985, both him and his uncle, uh, both of them were actually fighting over who has control over throughout politics. Uh, This culminated in a very famous thing called the Ming Court Incident, right? So up to 1985, it was shadow boxing. Uh, Second phase is 1985 to 1991, where we have an open conflict that led to the 1987 state election, where the uncle, Rahman Yaqub actually created a new political party to try to dispose him. Uh, came very, very close to winning the state election. Uh, but luckily, type survived, primarily because of the support from Mahate, but more importantly, support from the Sarawak Chinese community, especially SUPP. Uh, this was the famous Bangkok incident, Uh, I'm sure your readers can go and find uh, writings about it. It's all over the newspapers. And I'll argue the third part of his tenure is actually from 1991 onwards, when he consolidated his rule. And it's quite clear from 1991 onwards, uh, he was politically supreme. Uh, Nobody could touch him uh, politically. Uh, all the Sarawak groups, uh, for example, uh, the group that could challenge him directly were the diet community. Uh, they were really beaten from 1991 onwards. In fact, the situation became so bad that uh, Parti Bansa Dayat Sarawak, uh, the party that challenged him politically in 1987, was forced to come back into the Sarawak Barisan National uh, around 1994. So this gives you an uh, idea that he became politically supreme. He was untouchable after 1991.
0: So you talk about how strong he was, how supreme he was as a politician um, in terms of um, power over his opponents. But what was his major accomplishments during his time in office?
1: So when we talk about uh, somebody who has been in power for such a long time, uh, similar to Mahathir, When we talk about his accomplishment, I think basically we're referring to his political record more than anything else. Uh, This is very true in the Malaysian or the Southeast Asian context. So in terms of his major political achievement, i would argue there's about four or five of them. Uh, The first one, obviously, is for somebody who stayed in power uh, for more than 40 years. Uh, This meant a long period of political stability. So as I mentioned earlier, if you combine his uh, chief ministership with the governorship, he was in power for about 43 years or up. Uh, 43 years out of 61 years in the Malaysian Federation, that's basically two thirds. So uh, because of political stability, this allowed him to do uh, lots of things. And this leads to the economic arena where because of political stability, he was able to move the economy in a very, very specific way. Uh, the other good thing about political stability is it allows you to do long-term planning. You don't have to worry about the election cycles. Huh? I think the second important uh, political achievement uh, is that he managed to get a very high degree of political autonomy from Kuala Lumpur. You have to remember in the 1980s and the early 1990s, uh, there was a lot of turbulence in what we call uh, East Malaysia especially in Sabah. In Sabah, you had the rise of the Kadazan Dusun uh, under PBS. Uh, there was bombings in 85, 86 in KK. So all those things uh, never happened in Sarawak, and the federal government never felt the need uh, to intervene in Sarawak politics. So he managed to carve himself up a very strong uh, political autonomy uh, compared to Sabah. And his political autonomy, uh, we found out later, was due to a private deal he did with Mahathir. Uh, basically, the deal with Mahathir was that as long as he's in politically in charge of Sarawak, uh, Mahathir will not uh, interfere in Sarawak politics. So that is the reason why, until today, right, you'll find that the core parties of the old Barisan National are not found in Sarawak. Sarawak is the only state where there was not a single branch of AMNO a single branch of MCA or a single branch of uh, Gerakang or MICA. So that's the reason why. So I think the second uh, key achievement is political autonomy from Kuala Lumpur. And of course, the political autonomy uh, meant that that was the foundation for the rise of Sarawak state nationalism, which we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, The third uh, important political legacy is I think uh, he has completely restructured diabolics in Sarawak. So if you look at Sarawak politics in the 1960s, right, uh, most of the diets in Sarawak, including the Bidayu community, right, most of them were supportive of uh, Sarawak National Party, SNAP. So after the 1980s, when it came to power, right, all these parties were split into many, many different groups. All the key important diet political blocs were redistributed to many, many different parties. And of course, that led to the rise of PBDS and then the fall of PBDS and then all the parties that were broken up after uh, SNAP was uh, uh, deregistered. Uh, I think the fourth important political legacy was that, uh, unlike uh, what was happening in Malaya, he did not really push or never allowed uh, a very strong or rapid rise of political Islam. Sarawak is the only state in Malaysia, and this is not widely known, is the only state in Malaysia where Islam is not the state religion. Eh? Uh, Most people are very surprised when I tell them that, but uh, if you don't believe me, do look up the Sarawak state constitution. Islam is not the state religion. And although they were pushed by some groups in Sarawak to make uh, Islam the state religion of Sarawak, that never happened because type never uh, agreed to it. And I think his final legacy was that uh, he comes from a Melana background. The Melana constitute only 4 or 5% of the population of Sarawak, a very small minority group. But he managed to merge politically uh, uh, the Melana with the wider Sarawak Malay community. Uh, They'll come out about 20%, right? He made it into a block. So, today, right, uh, when you talk about the uh, Milano uh, block in Sarawak, basically you talk about the Malay block as well. So, I think these are some of his uh, key political achievements. I
0: have so many follow-up questions to that, especially about Mahadeir. But before that, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. James Chin. He's a professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. We will continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Dr James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. And we are talking about the late Sarawak Chief Minister and Governor, Abdul Taib Mahmud, who passed away this morning. Now, this conversation will also be available on podcast. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify, I would really appreciate it if you gave this a follow and drop us a review. It would be really, really helpful. So, James, now you talked about uh, in brief before the break about, you know, uh, Abdul Tay Mahmoud's um, relationship with Tun Dr. Mahade. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because you talk about how Taib Mahmoud was someone who. Uh, ensured a certain degree of autonomy for Sarawak, um, didn't allow Putrajaya and West Malaysia to interfere too much. But at the same time, decades later, today we are still talking about things like MA63. We are still talking about um, increasing autonomy for Sarawak. So uh, what did he actually accomplish when it comes to autonomy and what didn't
1: he so I think to understand the relationship between Mahathir and uh, Taek Mahmud, you need to understand that uh, Taek Mahmud spent a bit of time in Kuala Lumpur as a federal minister. So he knew the UMNO uh, uh, elites very, very well, including Mahathir. So by the time he came back to Surau in 1981, the same year that Mahathir assumed the prime ministership, uh, he was seen as, uh, from the Kuala Lumpur side at least, as somebody reliable, you have to understand from Mahathir's viewpoint, Mahathir himself was facing a lot of political pressure from Kuli in the 1980s. So he was having his own political problems. Huh? Uh, if you all remember the 2M administration and how his uh, deputy prime minister uh, resigned, all that sort of thing. But in terms of East Malaysia, he was having a real problem with Sabah because the Kadazan Dusun in Sabah were very unhappy and they were challenging uh, Kuala Lumpur directly i think for mahathir he understood clearly that he could not fight on two fronts politically eh? he could not fight on two fronts at the same time when i say fighting politically on two fronts, i mean confronting the Kadazan-Dusun problem in Sabah and, and, you know, trying to take a hands-on approach in trying to control Sarawak. Uh, Given the fact that he knows type very well and he knows that type uh, was, you know, uh, a very strong uh, supporter of uh, Barisan National, at least the concept itself, and as long as Sarawak Barisan National was clearly in charge of Sarawak politics, uh, he didn't have to worry that much. You must also understand that uh, type was also very clever in that when he projected himself to Kuala Lumpur, he always made sure that Kuala Lumpur understand that uh, he was loyal to the Federal Barisan National. And he always played the card that they don't have to worry about Surat too much because Surat was under the control of Malay Stroke now. So essentially, you know, I'm one of you guys, you don't have to worry about me. Uh, unlike Sabah, right? Sabah here, the Roman Catholic chief minister, in the name of Byring, all that sort of thing. So it was a totally different situation. So I would argue that uh, because of that, Mahate said, you know, as long as type is in charge, I don't have to worry too much. I will just concentrate. Uh, on, on trying to, to uh, what we call politically tame the Kadazan Dusun community in Sabah. So that's the reason why Mahate, uh spent a lot of time on Sabah politics, including direct intervention in 1990 when he brought the entire barisan missionary to Sabah. After PBS pulled out of the Barisan National on the eve of the 1990 general elections, so that is how I would I would describe in terms of tight Mahathir relationship. It was a relationship very much a transactional relationship. Type made sure that Sarah Barisan National dominated. Uh, politics in Sarawak and when I say dominated I mean they keep winning the parliamentary seats right it's a numbers game at the Dewan Rakyat so as long as type deliver the numbers from MATE side uh, why should I catch out Sarawak right I should spend my time trying to control Saba because Sabah <laughs> for lack of a better word in the old days they call it the wild west so I better control Sabah and leave Sarawak alone because Sarawak MPs will always support me because type was you know the undisputed king over there he'll make sure that all the and MPs they will support me no matter what. So if you can understand it from that aspect, looking it from the lens of the 1980s and early 1990s, you can see that it was perfectly politically rational for Type and Mahate to work closely together. And by working together, I mean that, you know, Type will deliver for Barisan national support. In return, Mahathir don't have to worry about Sarawak, just let Taib does what he wants in Sarawak, as long as he doesn't catch out Mahathir and he deliver the votes on the floor of the Dewan Rakyat.
0: You mentioned that, you know, at that time, it was something that um, if you put yourself in the shoes of Taib Mahmoud in the 1980s, you can see that what he did was politically rational. How would history remember um, this relationship, um, Taib Mahmoud with Putrajaya, especially Taib Mahmoud with um, Tun Dr. Mahade? Because as we know, as time progresses, even Tun Dr. Mahade's legacy is um, becoming tainted, if you will. At one point, he was inarguably the most. Popular politician in in Malaysia, and now the way people talk about Tun Mahade is very much different. The way people reflect on the past, when it comes to Tun Mahade is very much different as well. Um, is there that element um, when it comes to um, you know looking at this relationship between between Mahade and and Taib Mahmud?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, just to digress a little bit, mm-hmm. I think the reason why uh uh, the history of Mahathir's uh, political legacy in Malaysia is changing, was because he made a strategic mistake. His strategic mistake, I would argue, was that uh, he made a comeback. He should not have made a comeback in uh, 2018. In other words, uh, he should have become the so-called uh, uh, a step back voter. Uh, before 2018, uh, before the victory of, of, of Pakatan Harapan, we all know it's been well documented, uh, there was a political deal done that Mahathir will lead the opposition because they needed him for regime change. Otherwise, the Malay establishment would not go along with it, right? But it was always understood that he will be there for a limited term before he you know, he passed the power over to Anwar Ibrahim. Now, if Mahathir had gone through that deal or kept to that deal, uh, I think you're absolutely right. His legacy will be completely different. Everybody will say this is a fantastic person. He truly loved the country, you know, blah, blah, blah. But because he didn't go through that deal, and like I say, he tried to make a comeback, right? A third time in 2020, he tried to carry on and create a new government. And because of that, I think his legacy is spoiled. And I think his legacy is is especially spoiled because of some of the nasty things he said you know in recent years especially attacking the minority races in malaysia when there's really no need for him to do that so i think uh, you know by doing all those things his legacy has been spoiled so uh and and the reason i raised that issue is because you contrast that with type Type was completely different he finished his chief ministership he became the governor he kept largely out of the pictures the governor he didn't say anything controversial uh, you, know, and, you know, and he stepped down willingly recently, uh, he, you know, stepped down as, as the TYT or the governor of Sarawak, allowed, uh, uh, you know, a very smooth process to change the to ID. So I think because of that, uh, his legacy is completely different. I think it's also important to understand that the perception of Sarawak among uh, West Malaysians uh, or Malayans is that Sarawak is always a very different case. <laughs> and that's the reason why people always say that, you know, people from Sarawak are very, very different. And it's, I think it's part of this legacy that, you know, because uh, uh, Marte gave type so much autonomy, somehow the Sarawakians are different from the rest of Malaysians uh, in terms of their uh, uh, background, in terms of the political culture, everything. So I think the legacy of Maate and type are totally different. But I doubt very much when people write on Marte, they will uh, look at Mahathir, uh in terms of his legacy with type. I think when people write about his legacy, they'll talk about uh, the thing he was trying to do in Sabah. Because as you know, right, when you talk about Marte, you can't run away from Project IC. I mean, it's just, it's just no way to run away from Project IC. So I think Serhat will be a footnote in Mahathir's legacy, although in some ways it's a much more important thing, but it is not widely known, unfortunately. So, Taib Mahmoud um,
0: is an ethnic minority in Sarawak from the Melana community, which only represents 4-5% to 5% of the Sarawak ethnic breakdown. Yet, he became the longest-running Chief Minister of Shrawa. And something you alluded to is that he did so by combining or unifying in a manner of speaking the political base of the Malay Sarawakians and the Melanau Sarawakians how did he how did he do that and what's the significance of that when it comes to understanding ethnic relations in Sarawak
1: that's a really really uh, important question so i think the first place to understand is that uh, the Melanau's understood very clearly uh, early on that they were a minority and they were in power so the only group that they could approach uh, was fellow muslims the malay community who were the traditional powers of sarawak i'm talking about the malay community in kuching they were the traditional abang class and all that sort of group uh, their political legitimacy came from the Brunei uh, Sultanate. So uh, he created a sort of a, 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 you know, managed to merge the Malana political identity with the Malay political identity. And suddenly, from about 4 or 5%, they became a political block, about 20%. So that is one part of the picture. But the second part of the picture of how he was able to do it was that he had a very effective relationship. And this is a relationship set up by his uncle, Rahman Yakub between the Melanao ruling elites and the, the, what they call it, the elites in the Chinese community. The elites in the Chinese community were the so-called rich timber tycoons. So this link between the the timber tycoons, primarily Cebu-based timber tycoons, together with the Melanao key political holders, allowed them to sort of divide and rule the rest of Sarawak. So you had the best of both worlds. You had the Melanao political power, then the the Fuchao Chinese with the economic power. And when they combined together, uh, this was a block that was very, very difficult to overcome. So I'll argue that uh, these are the two most important criterias in allowing them to cement their power in Sarawak for a very long time.
0: James, in his time in power, especially the Chief Minister of Sarawak, did he do anything to empower and elevate the material lives of mine ethnic minority communities in Shrawa, because there is a difference. Um, and and while we celebrate whenever you know ethnic minorities um, get into position of power, it's it's um, very nice from a representation perspective. Representation is important, but. What's even more important is to see whether the lives of the working class masses, uh, working class masses, um, improve, right? So, um, because there is a difference between a, a representation of an ethnic minority from the top down from an elite perspective, um, compared to, let's say. Um, someone, uh, a representation from an ethnic minority, but from the working class, um, with the goal of empowering their community at large. If we look at Peninsula Malaysia, uh, Malay elites have been in power, um, you know, the highest power for for decades now. But there's still a large bumiputra um, poverty issue in Malaysia. We know how you know the Indian and Chinese elites themselves. Um, you know, did not perhaps do the best for their community at large. They focused on enriching themselves. Um, what kind of um, leader from the ethnic minority community was Taip Mahmud?
1: So I think uh, the legacy of Taip Mahmud in terms of the minority, Bumutra, is very similar to the Malay situation in peninsular Malaysia. I think if you speak to the bulk of the uh population in Sarawak, especially those living in the rural areas, uh, they will say that very little has changed for them. In fact, they will argue, they will openly tell you that they regard themselves as the third-class bumiputra. In other words, they get the crumbs of the new economic policy or the affirmative action policies. So uh, from that perspective, I don't think he has done a lot for the minority bumiputra uh, community. Most of the growth in Sarawak during his era is what we call urban bias. Most of them are concentrated in town areas. I think there's an argument to be made that because Sarawak is so large, it's quite difficult to bring development to all over the place. So, but I think it was also pushed uh, politically. Uh, that, you know, uh, his divide and rule, especially among the diet community meant that certain diet groups that were closer to him did get some benefits, but the overwhelming majority of that community uh, did not really benefit. I think if you were to do a serious study on Sarawak, I think the only key benefits the diet community got as uh, Bumutra of Malaysia was the education uh, pathway, especially through the UITM uh, network. I think the benefit uh, significantly from the education pathway. but in terms of economic opportunities and jobs and all that sort of thing I think uh, they really did not benefit during the uh, Thai Mahmud era.
0: Did shrawa see a lot of economic growth um, over the 40 years of um, Thai Mahmud um, being the ruling uh, you know ruling power in Shrawa did, did shrawa see economic growth?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, As I said, because he was in power for such a long time, there was a long period of political stability. Uh, Sarai Khamenei did transform uh, Sarat was one of the very few states that always had a surplus, uh, because it has a large natural resource base. Uh, but that is not the question. The question in Surat is not so much that uh, whether there was economic growth. There is a clear consensus among all groups that there was uh, economic growth. The problem is that who benefits from the growth, and this is where his controversial legacy comes in: uh, whether his immediate family, his family's companies, you know, are benefited. Out of proportion to the sort of growth we see in Sarawak.
0: And we we cannot talk about Taib Mahmoud's legacy without also looking at some of the major negative criticisms um, and and narratives that have been surrounding him um, throughout his 40 plus years in power. He faced allegations of corruption and cronyism during his time in power. Like you said, uh, you know stories about how his family and their businesses benefited from his time in power more than the Sarawakian masses, the working class masses. What can you tell us about this aspect of Taib Mahmood?
1: In terms of his uh, family's uh, business uh, dealings in Sarawak, a lot of it is actually done quite openly. So, for example, his family's uh, uh key company, CMS, is actually listed on a stock exchange. So a lot of it is actually done openly. It wasn't done in the shadows or anything like that. Uh, but I think the unhappiness or the uneasiness is really the sort of domination they have on the Sarawak economic landscape. Uh, if you speak to a lot of the big businessmen in Sarawak, they will tell you that very often uh, the project cannot proceed uh, because, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, it could it could be you know the allegations that the chief minister's family is either not involved or his family wants wants that business for themselves. But of course, these are all allegations. Uh, I think what will happen is that uh, now that he's no longer around, I think a lot a lot of these stories will will come up uh, in the near future. I think previously uh, a lot of people did not want to talk openly about it because he was in power, so like, uh, you know, like everywhere else, once you're no longer in power, a lot of this story will slowly uh, come out.
0: James, how did Tait Mamun use business to further his politics and politics to further his business? Because there have been many reports um, and allegations over the years about you know, how he had very tight control over businesses in Shrawa, especially when it comes to the logging industry.
1: I think in terms of uh, Malaysia, Malaysia is one of the uh, uh, countries around the world where uh, business and politics are always linked. And you can make a very strong argument. This is not only in Sarawak; this is the whole of Malaysia. It is actually uh, the political links that drive the big business. Uh, we know that, I mean, even if you look at federal government projects, if you're not on, on 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 you know, if you're not part of the same gang, it's very difficult for you to get government huge government projects. So I don't think it's unique to Sarawak, but Sarawak being a small state with a fairly small population, less than three million, uh, I think what you'll find is that the links are even uh, closer together. Uh, I can tell you that in Sarawak, uh, the elite class is actually very small. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, so because of that, uh, I think uh, you know. In terms of of the way the things are being carved up, a very, very small minority get it, and a very large part of the population uh, do not have access to any of these things. So this is where I think the anger comes from. As I said earlier, uh, the bulk of the population, or the majority of the dais, they really feel that they haven't really uh, had a chance uh, to to partake in the economic cake, and they always feel that they're being left out every time uh, something big happens in Sarawak.
0: Before we wrap this conversation up, James, um, like we said, we're going to do a part two where we dive into the future of Sarawak. But before we end part one, how would you sum up the legacy of Taib Mahmoud, his 40 plus years in power? And how do you think Sarawak will emerge from the shadows of Taib Mahmoud? Where does the state and region go from here?
1: So I think if you would ask me to summarise up Types, uh, legacy. I would say that the type era was very similar to the era of strong men in Southeast Asia. He came from an era where he got strong leaders: Marte, Suharto, Lee Kuan Yew, Marcos. He is part of the strong man era. A lot of things that he did when he was in power, uh, if he was chief minister today, he will not be able to do it. I mean, the simple truth is that, you know, in the old days, you can do lots of stuff uh, because nobody knows about it. (laughs) Today, if you want to do anything, uh, somebody will leak it on social media and, and, you know, there will be controversy. So he comes from a very specific era. So that's the reason why when I posted the news of his death, I mentioned that this is the end of an era in Sarawak, and, of course, the region. I think his other legacy is that it is it is really important to understand that he is probably the most successful uh, political leader in terms of longevity and power in the Malaysian system. And yet so few people know about him and his background and so few people know about Sarawak. And here when I say so few, I don't mean around the world. I mean even among Malaysians, right? If Even if you go to, to uh, Malaya now, people have heard of Thai Mamuk but they really don't have any idea how he stayed in power for so long. And when I tell people that he's been in power for more than two-thirds of the time Sarawak has been independent in Malaysia, people are utterly shocked. So I think that is his legacy, that he was able to maintain power for such a long time, a strong man, but who always managed to keep himself under the Malaysian radar. James, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much.
0: That was Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. You can find this conversation and others like it as podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.